Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Erica. And I'm Abby. Welcome to part two of our story about the Golden State Killer. Pour yourselves a strong cup of fire department coffee, and let's dive in. So if you guys did not listen to part one, recommend you go back and listen to that. Um, We're going to continue off of that for the rest of this episode. And we're going to continue talking about the Golden State Killer, how he was identified in his trial. A little bit of background information about who this person was. As Erica mentioned in the last episode, in 2016, the FBI and California officials had renewed their search for the Golden State Killer, aka all the other nicknames he had that we went through in part one. At this point, they had created a task force to try to figure out who this person was. He had been linked to more than 175 crimes at this point. And with the new technology that we had at this point, they were really thinking they could get a break in the case because throughout all of his crimes, well, not all of them, but a lot of his crimes, they were able to connect to collect DNA. So something we've briefly mentioned is the fact that the investigation throughout the years when these crimes were actually occurring were not too extensive. Um, Because he was crossing through different jurisdictions and because of the stigma of rape and sexual assault at the time, they were having a hard time connecting the crimes and getting a really a full grasp of how many crimes he was committing. At this point, we did have a description. We do have DNA. We have enough victims and stories that the FBI and California officials believe that if they really really worked on this they could maybe bring some justice to the they could really bring some justice to the large amount of victims that this person was responsible for additionally another another thing i came across about why this case hadn't really been solved or investigated as thoroughly as it even could have been was the fact that it was such a big case and it was getting so much media attention that everybody wanted to be the person that closed it that brought this person to the justice so there was a lack of cooperation between the jurisdictions between the different investigators because they wanted that credit and that notoriety that they took down this person which is such a disservice to all of the victims and really everybody because at this point if you live in any of these areas you're probably nervous every night you go to bed that something's going to happen yeah i think this is definitely a time where you are supposed to set your pride aside and focus on the what actually matters which is the fact that people are being brutally murdered and there's just you know there's just so much hurt and fear this person caused that it's crazy to me that with the dna with the descriptions with the survivors who could have identified a person that they didn't come together and make this arrest well before it ends up happening which brings us to the next segment of this episode which a lot of you probably have heard about it was pretty big news. Um, this case was one of the first cases to be I to be solved using genealogy and DNA testing that were uploaded into these databases that collect DNA and familiar DNA where you can connect DNA samples to family members and basically build a family tree off of it. This isn't a new thing in our podcast. We've talked about these cases more often than not. And it's really been blowing up the past couple few years now. But this case was really instrumental in launching that. It was one of the biggest cases solved using this type of DNA thus far. And I'm sure some more will get solved using it. This was worldwide news when this first came out, if you don't remember that. But it was everywhere. Um, It was being talked about frequently. And it was also just being talked about how much that was going to change all of the cold cases that currently exist and the impacts that it was going to 
make in solving crimes. Right. Cold cases um, and Jane and John Doe cases, too. This has been very instrumental in those. And it's just one of those great scientific advancements that is just bringing so much closure to so many families and victims. So what I'm going to do is talk to you guys a little bit about this process and how it was connected to the Golden State Killer. And a lot of this information I'm grabbing is pretty easy to find. I'm not going to get too scientific on you guys because to be honest, I don't understand it. So we'll keep it pretty, pretty easy for the for people like me who aren't scientific to know what's going on. So I'm going to read you some information from Forbes magazine discussing this genealogy and how they connected it to the Golden State Killer. And of course, the link for that will be in our sources for you guys to check out. Um, I just pulled out a couple brief things. So it's they go a lot more into detail if you're interested. So basically what we have is investigators had collected biological material, like I'd said, DNA from some of the past crime scenes for this attacker. So what they do is they take the DNA and basically cut it into all these tiny fragments and put them on what's called a genotyping chip. And in doing this, they can come up with this unique genetic variant or a DNA sequence that's specific to a certain person's DNA or at least close enough to a familiar DNA, so somebody they're related to. And they're able to upload this to databases to connect this sequence to ones that match. And this can be done through, I'm sure you guys all know about 23andMe, Ancestry.com, those kind of DNA databases. And so what investigators have been doing is uploading DNA sequences that are related to crimes to these to see if they can match it to a family member and then narrow down who it might be. Because usually if you've committed crime, I think it's fair to guess that you've probably not uploaded your DNA to anything. So it's really to just get that jump start to that connection to kind of narrow down who it could be. We also covered another case, um, April Marie Tinsley, who happened near where we lived in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And her case was solved using the same genetic genealogy. So if you guys want to check that out, if this is something that interests you, we, we do talk about this quite a bit in that case as well. Yeah, and you know, something like that and this case too and all these other cases that is helpful is people love using these things. Erica and I have both used them and it's a great way to connect to family members that maybe you don't even know about. Um, see where you come from originally way back when, where your family has originated from, what parts of the world and the country. And people love this and they you can enter your own information basically and kind of build a family tree, which can be helpful in solving cases like this. Basically what happened is they upload this DNA and they're able to connect to some family members. And you can look at the DNA and gather if it's like uh, someone really close in the DNA sequence, like a mom or dad, or maybe like someone a little further, like a cousin or second cousin or third cousin. So they had connected to a actually um, a third cousin of the Golden State Killer. And they just start looking at victims who maybe lived in the area, match the description. As Erica mentioned, they had a general one. We do have some um, sketches from earlier on in the investigations as well. What they're able to do is kind of with the DNA and the characteristics, narrow it down to a man named Joseph James D'Angelo. So they start looking into Joseph James D'Angelo and who he was. So a little bit more information about who Joseph James D'Angelo is, other than a horrific murderer, rapist, and burglar. So he was actually born on November 8th, 1945 in New York. He ended up spending the majority of his life in Sacramento, where he attended Folsom High School. 
as a child, his mom was a waitress at Denny's and they, both his mother and Joseph ended up moving to Auburn after she married a welder. A welder. When he was older, he ended up serving in the Navy for, uh, during the Vietnam War for about 22 months. And surprisingly, he came home as a decorated vet. He was given a National Defense Service Medal, a Vietnam Service Medal, and a Vietnam Campaign Medal. And I will, will be honest, um, coming from a military family, this was kind of hard to read because usually I'm so proud of our veterans and the people who have served in our war, well, in our wars and served for our country. But this was a really hard one for me because of all of the terrible things that I already know Joseph has done, that it makes it hard for me to be able to feel thankful for his service. Joseph attended Sierra College from 1968 to 1970 and then transferred to California State University. He did end up graduating in 1972 with a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. He was described by a neighbor as pleasant, clean cut, but he did lose part of his finger while he was fighting in the war. This is what had been stated. At one point prior to this, he was engaged to a woman. And I, be honest, I forget her name, but it was short. It was brief. She ended up leaving him. And then he did marry in 19... in 1973, Sharon Marie Huddle. And it was at this time that he started at the Roseville Police Department. I it was unclear if he was an intern or a volunteer, what exactly he was doing, but he did complete some work there. Roseville Police Department does state that they don't have any records of him ever helping out there, but he says that he does, and that's part of his story. So I don't know if that's an official thing. It was not long after that he did officially become a police officer in ex- Exeter, California. Um, And this was from 1973 to 1976. Then in 1976 to 1979, he served as a police officer in Auburn, California. If you guys remember the very first murder that I told you about of Claude Snelling, he was actually a police officer at the time of this murder. And then in 1979, Joseph was fired for stealing a hammer and a can of dog repellent. He was married to Shannon for multiple years. I didn't know. I don't know exactly how long. I couldn't find that. But they did end up having three daughters together over the course of their marriage. And then after he was fired from the police department, he worked as a mechanic at a supermarket distribution center for 27 years. He retired from this business in 2017. And that leads us right up to his arrest in 2018. After investigators had tracked down D'Angelo and was pretty sure that he was responsible. They started following him around trying to get DNA from him so that they could compare it to the DNA they had from the crime scenes and make a definitive match. So to do this, they had pulled DNA from um, a car door while he was in Hobby Lobby shopping. And then they also had obtained um, some DNA from a tissue in a trash can outside of his home. They were able to make the match and he was arrested very shortly after that. When he was actually taken into custody, I guess at one point he had said to himself in an interview room, quote, I did all those things. I destroyed all those lives, end quote. And that's something that comes up with him. There's um, a lot of supposed remorse that he exhibits during his trial or whatever you want to call it. He listens to family members speak about the victims and he issues kind of gives an apology later on which i'll read for you guys a little bit later but i just like i don't buy it at all and even if it is sincere like at this point there's just there's too much that he's done for there to be any like form of forgiveness in my eyes in the sense that like i think he was just doing it to try to get some um try to get some leniency i would agree i I don't feel like he was 
being sincere. I think it's, I, and we talked about it in, I don't remember if it was in this part or if it was in our last part, but we talked about um, the fact that whoever could do this to somebody, like there's no humanity left. Like you have to be able to separate yourself so far from whatever humanity existed that I don't know how you could still have that kind of remorse, not genuine remorse anyways. Yeah. And how much of it is remorse for the things you did or just remorse and kind of, you know, you're upset that you got caught because yeah, I just, we've said it more than once probably during this recording. He's a terrible person. 11 counties did have open cases against this man, um, but only six of them ended up bringing formal charges against him. And they kind of did so together in like a joint prosecution. Basically, there was a plea deal that happened and he ended up pleading guilty to 13 murders, 13 kidnappings, and 62 different rapes. He also admitted to 161 other uncharged crimes. He was basically trying to avoid the death penalty, and that was part of this plea bargain. And part of it as well, so at the point that he was actually brought to trial or charged, part of the reason they wanted this plea bargain to go through is because due to the statute of limitations, a lot of the rape cases had met that expiration date of when he could be charged for those crimes. So this was an effort to, you know, bring closure to all those cases and all those families. And part of the sentencing and the plea bargain had people upset because if you believe in the death penalty, this is a pretty good example of a case where that would be of where that would be an option. Um, however, it was stated that the court, I'll read you the quote, quote, the court is not saying that Mr. D'Angelo does not deserve to have the death penalty imposed. It merely means the court feels it will never come to pass. Mr. D'Angelo will spend the rest of his natural life and ultimately meet his death confined behind the walls of a state penitentiary, end quote. At this point, he was in his 70s. So I think this was the best way for them to bring a close to this case. So I've actually got a couple quotes and kind of stories from the trial. So I have three different ones uh, coming from the families of three of the victims. Well, actually, coming from the families of four of the victims that I just kind of wanted to read you guys a little bit um, of their thoughts, what they said during the trial, directly to Joseph. The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. So the first one is from the very first murder case that we talked about that happened in 1975, where Claude Snelling was murdered in front of his daughter, Elizabeth. Elizabeth did survive that incident, and she actually spoke at the trial to Joseph. And I'm going to kind of summarize most of it, but she said that her and her mom actually stayed in the same house that they had been attacked in after the attack had happened. She said that she did stay with her mom, like sleep in her mom's room for many years because obviously she was terrified. But she said that she always felt very vulnerable knowing that the guy that killed her dad was still out there because she always wondered if he would come back for her, which is a very valid fear in her situation. She did say that police gave extra security and, you know, patrolled every 
patrolled the neighborhood and stuff but i just i thought it was interesting that they chose chose to stay there um her end quote that she said which i i will say it as a quote but she said d'angelo was able to live a normal life with his family for all those years while my family and i could not be with my dad i am so thankful that he will at least spend the rest of his miserable life in prison end quote and i think that that's i mean i know we've talked about stuff like that before but you know joseph d'angelo murdered 13 people and raped over 60 people and terrorized the lives of really hundreds of people and he was able to get away with this murder with all of this crime that he had committed for over 30 years which is just insane to me that he was just able to go on and live a normal life you know he had three daughters and he somehow and he wasn't caught i just don't don't think it's fair no it's not and i'm just going to interject with something because it reminded me um of something i came up across when i was researching you're talking about him living his like normal life while you know everyone else obviously had to deal with that trauma something to note about him some of his family members kind of described him as like chill like a loving and patient person um wasn't anything that you would expect it was very ted bundy kind of esque where he wasn't exhibiting this behavior in his day-to-day life which probably was one of the reasons they had a hard time tracking him down but and then his sister at one point mentioned that their dad um, was an abuser and abused them and puts a little bit of the blame on their dad as well. And I think that's a really interesting thing to compare to these kind of statements where it's like, how much sympathy can you have for someone who's caused this much pain? I, It's definitely a hard line, for sure. Like, it's hard to be on one side or the other, you know? Um, same thing that I said when we talked about his service in the military, It's hard for me to feel appreciative of that when I know all of the monstrous things that he did after he was out of the military and potentially things that he did prior that we aren't aware of. I'm sure there's so many other crimes that he committed that we'll never know about. Yeah, that he I'm sure will take them to the grave because I also um, just my thought process. You said, you know, the statute of limitations made it so that he couldn't be tried for the rape charges. We've done an episode on the statute of limitations. It was a mini that we did a while back if you guys want to go listen to that and hear more about them um but what i was gonna say i think with rape or with certain charges the statute of limitations should be different and it should be we know that he did it this isn't like proving necessarily whether or not he did but my i think that the statute of limitations should more apply in situations of people coming forward if that makes sense not that i don't think that you know somebody that raped somebody should just get away with it because they weren't caught for 10 years or weren't able to be tried for 10 years even though somebody came forward right away or a rape kit was done right away and it's proven that it was them but they can't be tried for it because it's been so long i don't agree with that no i I mean i've said it before and i'll keep saying it rape charges are way too small in this country it is ridiculous i agree with erica 100 percent. that is such a violent crime and you're taking so much from somebody i don't understand i will never understand why they don't carry a heavier sentencing and i guess i shouldn't say that for you know every district i'm you know i'm sure there are judges and different different court systems that treat it a little bit differently but overall i think the generalization of it is that they're too they're too low the next victim's family that spoke was that of lyman and charlene smith uh the couple that was murdered in 1980 so lyman's daughter which we talked about this uh lyman's son actually found their bodies at the time of the murder and so lyman's daughter is the one that actually spoke during the trial And her name is Jennifer. And she basically just talked about how she felt so like she talked about the scene that her little brother Gary came upon when 
he ended up finding their bodies. Um, she said she was 18 at the time of the murder. And she actually said something that kind of surprised me. And she said, quote, Joe might be surprised to learn that I was a suspect for two days, end quote. And I didn't know that, that there, but I'm sure that that probably happened in a lot of these is, and I, it just wasn't something that I thought about, but she ended her, uh, her time of, her time of sharing with saying, quote, I've lived with the shame for decades. It's your shame, Joe, end quote. And then the last one is from his last known victim's family, Janelle Cruz, who was murdered in May of 1986. Um, her sister, Michelle, is the one that shared during the trial. And she said that she wondered if Joseph actually remembered murdering her sister. Like if he had any memory of her as a person or like if he had just blocked that out. And then uh, she talked a lot about, you know, her, the aspirations for her sister and then she said, quote, I wonder if Joseph D'Angelo has any remorse, end quote. Which fits in with what we were just talking about. <laughs> well, I think that for me, it hit me hard when she said, I wonder if he remembers the details. Mm -hmm. Because does he? Or were all of his victims so meaningless to him that he doesn't even remember them as a human or the awful things he did to them? I mean, over 60 rapes, there's, I'm sure it's very possible unless he like kept, I don't know if he... You know, some people who are serial rapists or murderers, like, keep items that remind them of it. But, like, I can't imagine he probably does remember all of them. I don't know. I It just kind of hit me differently, that, that phrase. Excuse me. She did end her statement with just saying that she hopes he rots. There is a link in our description, though. Um, it's the klknTV.com one. If you want to go on there, you can read more testimonies um and stories from the victims families that they're all not all of them i guess but the ones that um did testify are on there if you guys want to read those further following these testimonies d'angelo did issue a little bit of a statement he said quote i listened to all your statements each one of them and i'm truly sorry for everyone i've hurt end quote and i just feel like that right there shows how much he cared that's all you're gonna give them Yes. I Once again, it makes me think that he's sorry he got caught and he's not sorry for the terrible things he did. As we mentioned, he did plead guilty. So he is in jail in prison, still serving out his sentence. On a happier note, since D'Angelo's arrest, over 150 suspects have been identified through genetic genealogy, and that number is likely even higher today. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. Also, all of our sources can be found in the show notes of each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. Donations are greatly appreciated and assist in making the podcast possible. Other ways to support us include recommending us to friends and family, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening medium. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.